Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. You can open to Psalm 66 if you haven't opened there already as we prepare to study this psalm together, which we've been reflecting on already in our service and thinking about the need to praise the Lord because His name is glorious. He is worthy of glorious praise. But as we think about that, we must confess that sometimes that's difficult for us. We come to a place where we're overwhelmed by life. Maybe you feel like your circumstances are too much to bear. You're afraid of what the people around you think or what they might do. You're struggling with your circumstances and what might happen next. In these scenarios, we often hope in the wrong solution. We think that if only my circumstances would change or if only these people would cheer me on instead of resisting me or if only I had more control over my life and my circumstances. But the answer is that we actually need a a larger view of God. We need to worship Him again. And we worship because he deserves it. It's, it's who he is. It's what he's like. And he, he's glorious and calls the whole earth, as we read already, to, to worship him. But what we don't realize is that's often exactly what our hearts need. And we, we turn to other things and we look in other places to try to solve our problem. But really what we so often need is just to bow before him again and worship and to see the true size of our God when we do that, our, our struggles, our problems, the people around us just kind of shrink down to their true size. And we breathe deeply and we remember what our God is like. Psalm 66 is a call to that kind of worship. A worship that looks at God and His works and offers Him magnificent praise. It's divided by a few pauses in the text. You're familiar with this word in the Psalms. It's the word selah. And it, we don't know exactly what it means, but most think it's just intended to be a, a point at which you pause and reflect on what you've read. A great word for preaching, because that's exactly what we're doing. We're pausing to reflect on the words of this psalm. The selahs in Psalms don't always give us, you know, the outline or the structure of the psalm, but I think in this case, they do help us to see the structure of this psalm, because what you'll notice is that every selah in this psalm is followed by a call to worship. Just notice that with me before we dig into the the specific sections. There's a selah at the end of verse 4, and what do you notice in the very next phrase? Come and see the works of God, a call to worship. There's another Selah in verse 7, and what do you see in verse 8? Oh, bless our God, you peoples. Another call to worship. Notice the Selah down in verse 15. What do you notice in verse 16? Come and hear, all you who fear God. Each Selah is followed by a call to worship. Come and praise the Lord with me, the psalmist is saying to us. 
And so that will be our divisions today as we work through this psalm. And the theme of the psalm is quite clear. Come everyone and praise God for his awesome works. Praise him. Everyone. Sometimes we think about uh, the mission of the church, right? Being to share the gospel with all people. But do you know that the end, God's intended end of missions is actually that all people would praise him. He's gathering worshipers for himself. This is what he created the world to do, what he created us to do. And it's where we find our fulfillment in who he made us to be when we come and worship our God. Well, how do we do this? How are we to worship God? And we'll notice a specific focus in each of these sections, a, a slightly different call to worship in each section of this psalm. We're going to notice number one in verses one through four, our first section, that we, we sing his glorious name. There's an emphasis on vocalizing God's praise in verses one through four, and specifically upon singing his praise. It's called a joyful shout in verse one. Verse two tells us to sing out the honor of his name. We are to make his praise glorious also in verse two. Skipping down to verse four, we notice that we are to sing praises, mentioned twice there, sing praises. So one of the ways that we worship God is to vocalize that praise, to sing it, to shout it, to say it. We vocalize his worship. Why? Because his name is glorious. The call in verses one through four is to everyone It's to all the earth in verse 1. You notice that even in verse 3, the psalmist mentions that the enemies of God will submit to him and actually speak his praises. Even those who try to resist God in their hearts will ultimately bow to the Lord and worship him. We're we're told this in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, right? That Jesus humbled himself, the Father exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name. Why? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So indeed, everyone will one day bow to him. But the call is to do it now, to do it today, to bow the knee to our Creator Even those who would try to resist him will one day submit to him. Why not submit today and worship our great God? Again, in verse 4, all the earth shall worship you and sing praises. But you notice that not only are we to vocalize, not only is this a call to everyone, but it's directed to a specific thing. It's directed to the name of our God and specifically that his name is glorious. We're told that in verse 2. Sing out the honor of his name. The word honor there is actually the word glory. It's the same uh, root as the very next phrase that says to make his praise Glorious, sing out the glory of his name, make his praise glorious. His name is glorious. His name represents his his reputation, all that he has done, and in those works, the way he has shown us what his character is like. His works reveal his identity, who he is, what he's like. 
And so as we worship his name, we worship the works and the character of our God. We worship his glory. His glory is the perfections of God that, that shine like a bright light, that have weight to them, like something worth far more than what we've ever experienced. Our God is glorious like none other. And so through his works and his character, we praise his glorious name and we sing. We sing out. We give him praise. What a joy to gather together and to sing the praises of our God. It's important that we do this because God has commanded us to do this and he's worthy of it. Music has a powerful effect on us. Maybe you've noticed that before. Singing specifically has an effect on our hearts and on our affections. One way that we know this, we see this, is actually in the advertising world. For years and years and years, companies have used jingles to help us remember and to draw our affections toward a certain product. If you don't believe me, Uh, See if you can recognize, I I did a quick Google search of uh, the top most recognizable uh, business jingles, okay? So please don't take this as support of any of these companies. These are just the uh, recognizable jingles that you may be familiar with. So this will be our little quiz for the morning to see how music and words have affected you, all right? So here we go, and this is my test, see if I can actually sing these things. So uh, good luck with that. Here we go. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, I'm loving it. McDonald's, okay, you're doing good, all right, good, good, all right. Give me a break, give me a break, break me off a piece of that. Ah, you can even finish that one, well done, okay, okay. Every kiss begins with, okay, yeah, okay, jewelers, okay. I don't want to grow up, because I'm a Toys R Us kid. Oh, wait, that one gave it away. All right, well, there's a... The best part of waking up is folders in your cup. Yes, you got that one, which I would actually argue is maybe not the best part of waking up. (laughs) What would you do for a... Yeah, good. Okay, you're doing pretty well with these. You see, music is memorable, right? We catch it. We hear it. We learn the words, and uh, companies have known this for years. But do you know why? Music was created in the first place. God made music so we could worship Him. Music was intended to give us help in remembering what He's like, that the words of the songs and the melodies of the Psalms originally would help us to sing our praise to God and give Him glory and stir our affections to love Him more. Now, it's not sin to have a a jingle in your head, I get that, but oh, that more and more and more the songs in my mind and in my heart would be songs of praise to God. It helped me to remember what He's like, and in the the moments and the in-betweens of life to, to praise Him for who He is. That daily, moment by moment, my affection for God, my view of His grandeur would grow and grow and grow endlessly as he is worshipped in our lives. We are to sing of his glorious name. Sometimes we use the excuse, well, I'm not a singer. 
Well, you can be. Start by making a joyful noise to the Lord. And you'll find that the more you do that, you're able to sing better and better and better. God's made you to worship Him and He loves the noise that you make as you praise Him with words about who He is and what He's like. So I encourage you to sing. I encourage you to come to worship. Well, here you are. I'm talking to the wrong people, right? Thanks for being here today. Not for me, but because God deserves our worship. We are to gather to praise Him. Worship is not about us. It's not about what's convenient. We do whatever it takes to get here and to sing God's praises because He is worthy. One of the tendencies in our post-COVID culture is that it's become easier to miss church. We just stay home and and watch today. I'll I'll catch the live stream later. I, I understand that happens from time to time and we can't avoid that. That's part of life. But oh, that we would deepen our commitment to come and gather, not because it's convenient, but because we have a glorious God and He wants us to gather with His people to sing His praises. This is why our brothers and sisters around the world, Sunday after Sunday, risk their lives in a context where they might be killed for coming to worship. Why would they keep doing that? Because we serve a glorious God. Lord, help us to gather faithfully to sing your praises. And we are to make his praise glorious. The way we worship is not about us. It's not about our preferences or our desires. The way we worship is all about God. Lord willing, our worship will continue to be shaped by what pleases the Lord. I hope that it is, and I hope that it ever will continue to be. God has told us that it's the voices of His people that He wants to hear. And so our worship is intended to help us sing. Praise God for the singing this morning. Hope your heart was encouraged to worship Him afresh by the voices of His people singing His praises. Sing of His glorious name. There's another way that we worship God as the psalm calls us to today. We notice this in verses 5 through 7 where we're called to come and see His awesome works. Number two, it's how verse 5 begins. It's a call to worship. Come and see the works of God. The next phrase tells us that these works are awesome. He is awesome in His doing towards the sons of men. God's works are awesome because He is awesome. We serve a great and powerful God. Now, in verses 6 and 7, the psalmist looks back to two events in Israel's history. They're easy to kind of combine, but there's a slight difference. The first event we notice at the beginning of verse 6 is when he turned the sea into dry land. I think this is referring to the Red Sea. You remember the context. God had just redeemed the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And they're on the run. But then they're trapped. The Red Sea on one side, the Egyptian army on the other. And there God, by the hands of Moses, does this powerful miracle to part the waters of the Red Sea. And Israel marches through on dry land. And God leads them on toward the promised land. 
So the psalmist looks back to that event. He turned the sea into dry land. But the next phrase looks at another event. They went through the river on foot. I think that's referring to the crossing of the Jordan River. That's a little bit later in the history of Israel. Joshua is leading the people at this point, and it's the point at which they cross into the promised land. And there, the procession carrying the Ark of the Covenant, they they step into the waters, and the waters part, and it dries up, and they go across the river on dry land. Interestingly, in both contexts, God tells his people to remember what has happened. Listen to this quotation from Exodus 14.31, after the crossing of the Red Sea. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Or listen to Joshua chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, where God tells them to set up a memorial about this crossing. And he tells them what he wants them to remember. Remember that the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord uh, your God did to you at the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples on the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever." These two water crossings were intended to remind the people of God that the hand of the Lord is strong, that he is awesome in his works, and that not just Israel, but that the whole earth would fear the power of the Lord. The psalmist looks back to these awesome works of God. Both of them involved movement toward the promised land, and I think that's what the third phrase of verse 6 refers to. There we will rejoice in Him. The Israelites looked forward to entering that promised land where they would rejoice, but notice it's to rejoice in Him, in God, in the strength of their God who had helped them, who had done this miraculous deed in parting the waters of the Red Sea, parting the waters of the Jordan, so the people could enter God's provision. The joy is in God. And so this section closes in verse 7 by the psalmist reminding us that God rules by his power forever. I love that statement. What an encouraging statement in any time of history that our God rules, present tense, by his power forever. Awesome are the works of our God. He's in charge. How does this rule play out? His eyes observe the nations. He sees everything that happens. Nothing slips by his gaze. He knows every event and circumstance. And so the psalmist concludes, do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. This isn't so much a command to the reader to somehow stop the rebellious from exalting themselves. It's more so a warning. It says, look, do you see the awesome power of our God who rules forever So, reader, be warned, don't exalt yourself. Don't even try to rebel against this God. He's awesome in His works. So, it reminds us that as our view of God's power and glory grows, our view of ourselves rightly diminishes. Why would we resist Him? He rules with power. We love to see awe-inspiring things. 
You may have noticed this in our uh, smartphone culture, right? Uh, almost any time you encounter somebody with their phone open, uh, they've got something inspiring to share, right? Some funny video that they watch or some picture or some clip. Oh, oh, oh check this out. You've got to see this. Did you see this video yet? Oh, look at this one. You're not going to believe this, right? We, we, we love sharing these kind of awe-inspiring things with one another. I was reading an article about this the other day and how it's actually changed the way we interact with awe-inspiring events. So what happens is this. A crowd gathers around something. Carrie and I observed this at uh, a big pond that had uh, like water fountains and lights underneath. And so they would kind of do like a, a fountain show to music. Maybe you've seen something like that before. There's a variety of locations that do that. So we were watching one of those and observing it. And I had just recently read this article about how phones had changed the way we observe events. And what they pointed out was that people are actually more concerned about getting a picture or a video of the event than they are of actually watching the event themselves. And so if you scan the crowd, you'll see that the vast majority of people are not watching the event, they're watching their phones. So instead of watching the full picture of what's going on, they're looking at this tiny little screen of what's going on. I was like, no, people don't do that. And then I looked and observed, and like, everyone Observing this fountain show was looking at their phones rather than observing the, you know, awe-inspiring fountain show. They're all looking at these tiny cameras. Why? Because they want to be able to show somebody. They want to tell the awesome thing that they saw and they've got the proof on their phone. But did they really see it or did they also just watch it on their phone, right? We've become so consumed with a desire to tell somebody else, to show somebody else, ooh, look what I saw, see what I have on my phone here, that we miss out on the awe-inspiring events themselves. In our own relationship with God, we are called to come and see God's awesome works, to lift our eyes from the phone and to look to Him and to remember what He has done and to let His grandeur just awe us, speechless before the awesome God and his works, to marvel not only at the deeds he accomplished in his word, as we go back and read about things like the the exodus or the crossing of the Red Sea or the parting of the Jordan or whatever we might think of in scriptures, but to even think back in our own lives, the, the memories of things that we saw God do in our circumstances, or in our trials, or in in this area, this area, or maybe most magnificently of all, in our hearts, when I was resisting Him, and He changed my heart. To marvel the awesome works of God, come and see what God has done. This is part of the reason that we gather together as a church to display and delight in our glorious God together, to marvel at His awesome works, to remind each other what God has done, both in, in the Word and in our lives. This is why we study the Scriptures. We look for His awesome works that our hearts might be stirred to know Him more and love Him more and to worship Him. Friend, I encourage you, if you've not developed this habit in your own life, On a regular basis, through the week, 
Open the scriptures, not for some advice for your day or not for help to make a decision, but just to marvel at the works of God. Just open the pages of scripture to be awed by him. Start your day with a period of just just delight in God. Read something about one verse, find a verse that tells you a little bit about what God is like. And in your heart, five, ten minutes, whatever it takes, just just worship Him. This is the purpose. This, This is it. Study the scriptures to see God's awesome works. Set up memorials in your life, both at the Red Sea and at the Jordan crossing. God told his people to remember. When God does something in our lives, we are to take note. Find ways to remember what God has done so that you can tell the story, so that you can remember yourself. Invite others to see God's awesome works. Oh, that our conversations in church would often sound like this. Have I told you what God did in my heart this week? Can I just share with you how his word has been at work in me? That we together would marvel at his awesome works. This protects us from exalting ourselves, of thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought The more we worship his works, the more we develop awe for his power. And the bigger God is in our view, the smaller our circumstances get. Come and see his awesome works. Number three today, bless him through tribulation. Bless him through tribulation. In verses 8 through 15, the psalmist talks about a time of difficulty in the life of Israel and in his own personal life. And yet, he calls the reader to bless our God and to make the voice of his praise be heard there in verse 8. Now, we would think he'd be about to describe something awesome, but he goes on to describe a time of tribulation, a time when God had allowed a trial. Look down through these verses with me and just notice the kind of trial that they faced. In verse 9, he said that even through this trial, God kept their soul among the living There's a plural first person, so I think he's talking probably about the people of Israel. He preserved Israel. He did not allow their feet to be moved, so somehow even through this trial, God preserved them. But he says in verse 10, you, God, have tested us. That's the word for a trial. God refined them as silver is refined. That involves a process of heat and burning. So through this tribulation, they were refined, and the psalmist is rejoicing in that. Verse 11, he says, you brought us into the net. That's a place of captivity, like being caught or being trapped. And he says at the end of verse 11, you laid affliction on our backs. Again, we don't know exactly what scenario the psalmist is referring to, but laying affliction on our backs is like being a slave. And so maybe this is the time that they were in Egypt, or maybe this is a time of captivity in the life of Israel. Verse 12, you've caused men to ride over our heads. That has to do with, like in battle, actually the horses of the opposition riding over them, trampling them. So maybe this came after some loss that they had in battle. We don't know exactly, but he summarizes it this way in verse 12. We went through fire and through water. Trial and difficulty. But what did God do at the end of verse 12? But you brought us out 
to rich fulfillment. And that's a beautiful word at the end. It can just mean abundance, provision, satisfaction. Again, we don't don't know exactly what this is referring to. But the psalmist, even through trial, is blessing God for his provision and care. This section transitions in verse 13 because now we read about the psalmist's personal response. Not only is he calling the people of Israel to bless God for helping them through their trial, but now he personally turns to worship. He himself may have despaired in this trial and so made some promise to God. In verse 13 there, we read about it. He says, I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows. So in some response of gratitude, he's saying to the Lord, I'll I'll, I'll give you what I promised to give you. And so maybe in his time of trial, he had made some, some promise to God. And he says, personally, I'm going to worship. Verse 14, my lips have uttered this promise. My mouth has spoken it when I was in trouble. And so, verse 15, I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals with the sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls with goats. The psalmist comes to the Lord to worship even through tribulation. We tend not to be thankful for trials and tribulation. And I understand that. I can't think of a time in my own life that I was thankful for a trial or a tribulation. But here the psalmist praises God. What's the difference? Well, I remember as a coach, uh, I often was as the assistant coach, often put in charge of the fitness side of our team's work. And so that meant push-ups and sit-ups and sprints and so on and so forth. And so especially during training week or tryout week, the first week of the season, we would push the athletes to the brink, to as far as we could push them because we wanted to prepare them for the season. And so I remember planning these torturous practices for the players, right? We're going to go right from push-ups into sit-ups, and then we're going to do sprints, and then we're going to do a two-mile run, and then we'll come back and we'll do some more sprints. Like, what? How can I exhaust them as much as possible? Now, I admit, there was a little bit of pleasure in that for me as a coach. Often I tried to do all the activities with them, but uh, as a coach, I could uh, step out anytime I wanted to, which was kind of great as well. But you'll be surprised to learn that I never had a player thank me for the sprints and the push-ups and the sit-ups. And yet at the same time, they participated. They knew that we were doing it for a reason. They knew that in these sit-ups and push-ups and sprints, we had in view the coming games in which a soccer player can run multiple miles just in the course of one game. And so they knew that we were preparing them for the upcoming matches where they would be pushed to the limit and that if they didn't work through these things in practice, they would be completely unprepared for the upcoming games. And so though they weren't thankful for the trial, they participated, they went through with it. Why? Because they knew the value of it. They knew what the coaches were trying to do. Even more so with our God We can bless his name through trial and tribulation because we know what he's like. This is what the psalmist focuses on in his own tribulation. He remembers that the Father is bringing them through this trial because the Father is refining them. 
He's making them purer and better, more pleasing to Him. There's a purpose to it. He's already praised God's power, and it's often the kind of worship we see in verses 1 through 7 that's just in awe of the power of God that prepares us to go through trials well. If our worship is weak, we'll often struggle in trials. But if we see God rightly, we'll come through trials victoriously. But I want you to notice that the psalmist is aware that God was with them through that trial. God was providing for them through that trial. He did not allow their feet to slip like he says in verse 9. And again in verse 12, God brought them through to rich fulfillment, to abundance, to provision. When we keep in view the goodness of our God and the the purpose of God through the trial and the, the start and the end and how God is going to use it in our lives, we're able to bless and praise the Lord even as we go through it. To acknowledge His sovereign plan, to trust His promises, and then to worship Him on the other side. Number four today, in the final section of the psalm, we see that we should tell what His love has done for us. The actual invitation to worship of verse 16 is, Come and hear, all you who fear God. And we can think of applying this in two ways. One is that we should gather to hear about the works of God, like we're doing today. The sharing of what God has done for our souls. But we could also learn from the psalmist and the value of sharing ourselves what God has done for our souls. Telling the story of how His love has blessed our souls. The psalmist describes it in these ways. He says in verse 16, I will declare what He has done for my soul. So this is spiritual refreshment and help from the Lord. He describes the events in verses 17 through 19. He was in trouble. He cried to the Lord with his mouth. He praised God with his tongue. He recognized that if he was protecting or regarding sin in his heart, that the Lord would not hear him. But he recognized that God did hear him and attended to the voice of his prayer. And so again in verse 20 he says, Blessed be God who did not turn away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. That word mercy is a key word through the Psalms, through the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word has said. We talk about it a lot because it's a beautiful word. It refers to God's steadfast love. And so you notice that it was God's steadfast love that carried the psalmist through this time. It's the reason that God answered the psalmist's prayer. Why? Because he did not turn away his mercy, his steadfast love. And so we think of this section as an example of what God's love has done for our souls. And I want to make a brief comment on verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. We know that in the larger picture, God hears everything, right? We understand that. He is everywhere. He sees all things. He hears all things. So the sense here is not hear so much as in, in the sense like, oh yeah, I heard that too, but rather hear and answer, hear and give an affirmative. Yes, I'll do that for you. So the psalmist says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, I know the Lord will not answer affirmatively to my request. Now that's an interesting statement. We have to think about what he means by that. I think one way to summarize it 
is that God's primary concern in our lives is to do what is good for us. As New Testament believers, this is proved to us at the cross. We know that God will do anything to do what is good for us. Why? Because he sent his son even to die while we were yet sinners. That's, that's our guarantee that God's invested in what's good for us. But we also have to remember what is actually good for us. And often what we ask for is not the same good that our all-knowing God has in mind. In fact, if we are regarding sin in our hearts, if we are protecting sin in our hearts, the primary good that God has in mind is to get that sin out of our hearts because it will destroy us. And so when we are maybe under the loving discipline of God because we're protecting sin in our hearts and God has allowed some trial in our lives to refine that sin out of us, but we say, no, I'm holding on to it. Just get rid of this trial. Well, of course, God's not going to answer yes to that. It would not be loving of God to answer yes to that. A good and loving God continues to pursue us because of His Son and to help us to turn back to Him and stop protecting that sin in our hearts and to be rid of it, to be cleansed of that which would destroy us. This is the goodness of our God. One commentator put it this way, if you cling to sin, you cannot cling to God. Why would God remove the refining trial if I'm resisting his good work? God continues to pursue us in his love, in his steadfast love, his unchanging love, to do good for our souls. And we know that this is the way he is and how he acts toward us. And so we're encouraged Not only to hear how God has been good to us, but to tell what his love has done for your soul. The first question I would ask is whether you have accepted God's love demonstrated on the cross, whether you've let him heal your soul. The Bible is clear that we have all rebelled against our holy creator, the awesome God. We've committed acts of sin that go directly against what God has told us to do as our creator. That sin has a punishment. Sin against an eternally holy God deserves eternally just punishment. And that punishment is separation from him in the torment of hell forevermore. But God, in His steadfast love, sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins, the sins of the world, your sins and mine, and has offered that gift of salvation that anyone who places their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ can have their sins washed away, but not just left with a blank slate. God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Meaning not only does he wash our sins away, but he gives us the righteousness of Christ so that we can be acceptable to him and have a place in his eternal, perfect, holy kingdom. Has God healed your soul by cleansing your sin and giving you Jesus' righteousness 
so you can be at peace with God. If not, would today be the day that you would accept his gift of salvation and trust in him alone to save you from your sins? Know the healing of his love on your soul. If you do know this love in your life, if your soul has been healed by his cleansing, forgiveness, and justification, then the question is, are you prepared to tell your story? Is this gospel change in your life, change the way you see the world, so that as your view of God grows and grows and grows, and your view of self and others diminishes and diminishes and diminishes, the size of God's gospel love that reached down from His holiness to save you in your sin grows and grows and grows. And so pretty soon, everything in life is a reminder to you of the love of God and His kindness to you in the gospel. We're filled with gratitude and thankfulness and true, genuine humility that recognizes our sin and rejoices in God's provision. Are we ready to share with others what God has done for us? To tell the story of how the gospel changed our lives. These are the calls of Psalm 66, calls to worship to remember what his love has done for your soul, to stand in awe of his powerful works, to worship his glorious name, to sing his glorious praise with the saints. And to find that as we do that, he is larger than we ever imagined. We're smaller than we'd ever seen before. His love is massive and it will keep growing as we understand it better through eternity. And we find that suddenly life isn't as overwhelming as we once thought it was. Our circumstances aren't as big of a deal. I'm not really afraid of what people think of me anymore. I'm not worried about the future. I know what my God is like. As life becomes overwhelming, what we need is a clearer view of God. What we need is to return to worship. Come, everyone, praise His awesome works. Father, we thank You so much for what You have done for us in the gospel, in Your works through history, in Your power and Your glory and Your love. We praise You. And even now as we close and have the opportunity to sing together, may we praise Your wonderful works May your praise be glorious because you are a glorious God. We worship you in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.